This is Revelations Radio News with Andrew Hoffman and Tim Kilkenny on the Revelations Radio Network. Welcome back to Revelations Radio News. I am still podcasting from the seaside town of Edmonds, Washington. Today I am not joined by Andrew Hoffman or the uh, esteemed James Corbett as I was on the last episode, but today I am actually joined by James and Joanne Moriarty. They are from uh, Texas. They uh, are the people behind LibyanWarTheTruth.com. I first heard about them from James Corbett's podcast. And uh, now I have the pleasure of speaking with them on the line. So thank you guys for coming on. Thank you for having us, Tim. We appreciate it. We're so proud to be with you. Well, I appreciate that. So um, like I said, I heard about you. I know a little bit about you from the the, uh, the the interviews you did with James, and I encourage people to go check those out. But, uh, you know, here we are, uh, a, a Christian podcast that looks at the news in kind of a different way and as Andrew likes to say, uh, we're kind of a, 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 a flag in the sand saying, you know, we didn't fall for it. <laughs> so um, anyway, uh, so I think you guys will fit in pretty well around here. Um, but let's get let's get right into it. Please tell us just a little bit about yourselves and your background. Well, we were we're business people. We're not activists or are, are people who are, have government conspiracies or anything like that. We were. <laughs> We, we were in, we were in, and we would like to be again in the oil uh, business. We were in Libya since 2007, January. Uh, we have a unique product that rejuvenates oil wells and cleans up pipelines and sludge pits. It's an environmental project product as well as a, a, an oil service product. And we went to Libya to see about getting business there because Libya had been closed out for, I think, 38, 38 years from Western business. They'd been embargoed. And in 2006, Condoleezza Rice signed that uh, treaty with Libya to open them up to business again. So we had a lot of business to do in Libya, and we knew it. We just didn't know what Libya was like or the people were like. We were the first non-government sponsored company to go to Libya. We arrived there January 1st, 2007. Planned to be there about five days. Had uh, four security guys with us to travel at each corner anytime we went any place. And after a couple of days, we sent them home. Didn't need them. So, Libya was the f- lip. Go ahead. I was just gonna say. So you weren't living in fear of the bearded uh, Muslim men who were gonna uh, attack you and kill you right as soon as you uh, landed there in Libya. Well, you know, we didn't know about Libya. You right. know, we knew for thirty-eight years they had 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 no new technology. Their oil production had been three and a half million barrels a day. It was down to a million. That has our name our, for our technology all over it. And uh, after we got there, we found the people so friendly. We. In the last 30 years, in our travels all over the world, when you're from the United States, you don't get a smile. Everybody mm-hmm. frowns. They don't like you. In Libya, exactly the opposite. Everybody smiled. We're so happy to see you. Do you like our country? Can we help you? I promise you that hadn't happened to us in years. So consequently, we sent our security home after two days. And then after, after we made one short presentation about our technology, and they asked us, we liked them from day one. They liked us. They asked us if we would stay over to talk to some of the ministers in Libya because they wanted to know about the Western world. We agreed to do that. We stayed an extra 10 days. Long and short, we met every night with a different minister. They were asking us questions about how business was done, etc. And in the end, 
we signed a contract to treat or rejuvenate 2,500 monster wells. That's about $600 million to a billion dollars worth of our product for oil wells. Now, that's a home run in anybody's business. And to do it the first shot out of the barrel, phenomenal. So we then went back to try to really find out what Libya was like to try to understand their laws and the way they did business. And, and uh, you know, a closed shop, something for 40 years that had had no, for all practical purposes, no foreigners in there, needed to be in, investigated because to produce a billion dollars worth of anything was going to mean some hundreds of millions of dollars investment from our side. So we investigated and we found out how to do business. We complied with all the regulations they had for doing business. But we always use a local partner. We don't go get involved in the local politics or anything. We keep our head down. We do our magic in our production facility and in our lab. Didn't find a, a partner within a couple of years. So we started building a plant in, in uh, South Texas, Hurricane Ike. Moved that one out in the middle of the Mediterranean. So we then... No, in the middle of the Gulf. I mean, middle of the Gulf. So we decided to go back to Libya and find a partner. We actually found a perfect partner in the Social Security Investment Fund of John Zur. And that was the smallest of their six investment funds. It was a $16 billion fund. However, all the beneficiaries were retirees from the oil and gas production, maintenance operation, and, and national oil company. So we really, with that partner, we had a perfect entree into all the oil field service companies and production companies, et cetera. I signed that agreement with them the 2nd of January, 2011. Uh, we signed the contract to move our facility or build a new facility, a mega facility in the new free zone, which was going to be near the Tunisian border. And I left Libya on the uh, 8th of uh, February. The fighting started the 17th. It was not a popular uprising. We'd gotten to know the Libyans pretty well in those four years from January of 2007 till uh, February 2011, we'd been to Libya 17 times, never there less than 30 days, sometimes as much as three months at a time. We'd been all over Libya. We had expanded our business opportunities in the environmental remediation area, tank cleanup, tanker cleanup, sludge cleanup, huge amount of business we'd booked. And James, I'd like to add that for those who are interested in the culture of Libya, it's a tribal culture. It's an 8,000-year-old culture, and Libya was occupied most of its history for 8,000 years until 1969 when they had their bloodless coup, where the people, the tribes of Libya stood up and threw the despot king out. Now, the despot king was put in place by the United Kingdom. It was not part of Libya. He was a, he was a guy placed in there to protect the U.K. interests in oil, and he, the Libyan... Uh, salary, average salary was 60 dinar a year. Basically, the Libyans were uh, the workers, the slaves of the Italians who were occupying Libya at the time and of the old king. So when they overthrew, when they had this bloodless, uh, it was a revolution. When they overthrew the king, he just ran off because he knew he was a despot. Uh, Gaddafi was appointed head then and from 1969 until 2011, Libya went from the poorest, most underdeveloped country in Africa to the richest, most developed country in Africa. It's a completely secular country. Uh, Christians were there. Jews were there. Everybody was protected there. If you had a book, a religious book, you were protected there. Women were emancipated in the 1970s by Gaddafi, not required to wear headscarves, not required to wear burqas, not requirement of of any of the radical Islamists. In fact, Gaddafi threw all that out. He did not believe in it. 
women were doctors, lawyers, homemakers uh, in the military. They were allowed to do anything. They were they were part of the culture, just like men were. And it was it was a quite a surprising event for us to see all that. We didn't know Libya was the freest, most secular Muslim country in the world. We 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 believed that Gaddafi was at least a half a bubble off. We believed that he was probably guilty of of Lockerbie. We've since found out that that was actually a CIA event and and another one of the, the dog another wag the dog event. But uh, the salary in Libya, as Joanne said, was sixty dinar a year. That was about forty five dollars. Uh, at the time we were there, it was the highest salary in all of Africa at $15,800 a year average. That's higher than India, higher than China. Uh, if you got a college degree and couldn't find a job, you were paid $15,200 a year until you found a job. The house subsidized, uh, the, all the housing was subsidized by the government as a way of participating in the wealth of the, of the oil. Your, your home cost you 10% of your salary for 20 years, and then that was yours. They were, the country had, was building over 640,000 new condominiums, 2,000 square feet up to about 2,800 square feet. And if your salary was $900 a year, you paid $90, I mean $900 a month, you paid $90 a month for 20 years, and then it was yours. Now, your uh, utilities were free, electricity, water, gas, etc. Gasoline was 44 cents a gallon. Your first car cost you half of dealer invoice. Uh, uh, your health benefits were fully paid, and if you couldn't get your health taken, health taken care of in Libya, then the government paid for you to travel outside to have your health uh, challenges taken care of. They paid your, your travel expenses and a member of your family to go with you. Education, the same thing. It would, they would support your education to whatever uh, level your brain would support. We knew a young man that was, had a wife and four children. He was getting his doctorate in England. His monthly stipend, after all of his expenses for costs, I mean for tuition, books, fees, etc., he was paid uh, 4,900 pounds a month as a stipend to live on, that's a, that's over $7,500 a month while he was in school. So the Libyan people, nobody had any debt. The country had no debt. Libya had $241 billion in the Federal Reserve System. They had 150 billion euros in Euro clear. They had $39 billion of cash in the country. They had 179 tons of gold, 2,000 tons of silver, lots of tons of all the other heavy earths, precious metals, et cetera. No, no debt to the World Bank, no debt to the IMF, the Fed bankers, the Zionist bankers had no control over that country. In fact, first trip in, since we stayed longer than we, we, we had planned, we didn't take enough cash with us. And so uh, they didn't take credit cards. They didn't have any international banking. Their international bank in 2007 was Western Union. So it was a completely different country than what you'd found out, but the people were happy. They were well-educated. The illiteracy in males was above 92%, in females about 87%. Gaddafi had given the land to all the Libyans that, that had been working the land for the Italians or whoever was occupying them at that time. As soon as, as, soon as they threw everybody out, he gave the land to the Libyans. So a lot of Libyans became landowners and farmers, and they were happy. First time ever. Um, so it was a different country, you know, and the, and the culture was ancient. They, they were a closed shop. They really didn't have much tourism. They had about 350,000 foreigners a year in Libya. Most of those guys were in the 
oil field service business. Joanne said it was England that installed the old king, but I can guarantee you anything that happens, England and the United States are joined at the hip. France was right along with it. The reason Libya is so strategic is that they have the lightest or the sweetest oil in the world. They a specific gravity 45 to 55. You can almost take it out of your out of the ground and put it in your crankcase. Very, very low sulfur. And there's refineries in Germany and France that can only process Bonnie Light, that sweet crude from Libya. So it was a, a very strategically important uh, resource for those countries. In addition, Libya produces a huge amount of natural gas, much like Venezuela. They produce as much dollar volume of gas as they do oil. And there are two pipelines that run from Libya to Italy underneath the Mediterranean. And um, Italy receives uh, 25 cents per thousand cubic foot discount on that natural gas. They sell it into Europe. All the expenses of the government of Italy are paid by that profit off of that gas. So, you know, to, to think that the people of Libya were unhappy, maybe three or four percent. And these were despot, uh, radical psychopathic, Islamists. radical Islamists from the far east area, Derna primarily, and Benghazi. Benghazi. And uh, the, the mafia in Libya was, was Mizrata, who were the Jewish Turks that moved to Mizrata about 150 years ago, claimed to have converted to Islam, but they were nothing but mafia. They absolutely were the... They were the heavy hand in Libya. They received all the contracts, all the government contracts. They 60%. received 60% of them without bid or tender. And then all they would subcontract to foreign developers, and then they would screw those foreign developers with underpayments and, and no payments for change orders, et cetera. And then the foreign company would eventually uh, abandon the project for for cause. And then the, the Mizrata Mafia would turn around and, contracted again to another foreigner and of course uh just really bad bad guys and uh they were caught stealing they they sold the government of libya one of their big company partners sold the government of libya a hundred billion dollars worth of phony paper a bernie madoff kind of a, an event and some it guys in the government caught it found it and the government of libya was actually going after the Mizrata Mafia, and they were going to take all their assets from them, which included the biggest oil field service company, et cetera, et cetera. They immediately joined hands with the CIA and these radicals in the East to overthrow Libya, which had been the plan and the attempt of the U.S. CIA for, for ever since Gaddafi was in power. So, you know, the, the sad fact was there was no Arab Spring. There was no uprising. It was all a wag the dog event. And the reason was to overthrow Libya for three reasons. Number one, uh, Gaddafi didn't like the Federal Reserve or the Rothschild Group or the Zionists. And so he was developing a gold-backed currency for the country of Africa. It was called the African Bank. All the Arab countries had signed up as members. Half of Africa had signed up. Can you imagine a gold-backed currency with the resources of Africa? It would have put the toilet paper bankers, the Rothschild Group, Federal Reserve, Euroclear, Bilderberg, Zionists, all of them out of business. They wouldn't have been able to sell their toilet paper anyplace. So they had to take Gaddafi out and kill the African bank. They could not have a solid currency. They had to have a fiat paper world. That was first. Second, uh, Gaddafi and Libya had nothing to do with Lockerbie. That was a, a, a CIA event. 
because the report about the CIA's involvement in drug trafficking worldwide from Afghanistan and all over, uh, that report was on that plane, and uh, Gaddafi agreed to pay restitution just so he could get the doors opened up so his country could do business They were again. coming back for a repayment. Yeah. Because it had been proven that they weren't party to it. And that was the that was the lawsuit Gaddafi had brought was bringing forward on behalf of the African Union for all the treaties that had been broken and all the lies and promises that had not been kept, and the 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 lawsuit was for seven trillion dollars, and the African Union was filing against every single imperialistic country that had been in in Africa, which included, of course, Italy, France, Germany, England. United States and everybody, and as the attorney said, that lawsuit had legs. So with all the European countries' uh, economies in the toilet, they could not afford any kind of payment to Libya, much less something in the trillions. So they wanted to get rid of, of uh, Gaddafi at all. So you've got, you've got Lockerbie, and you've got, you've got uh, that action against, the, against all the countries, and you've got the gold-backed currency. And then AFRICOM was the coup de grace. The United States is bound and determined to have military control of Africa to keep China away from the natural resources in Africa. There were six countries that refused to join up. That was Libya, South Africa, no, there were eight. Libya, South Africa, and six others. Uh, Libya said, not ever are we going to give up military control of our country. So, of course, the United States wanted to blow up Gaddafi and Libya for that reason. So it was real nasty. Here was only a country with six million people. Lots of money, lots of natural resources, the sixth largest oil reservoir country in the world. So just kill all the Libyans and let's take the country over and get rid of these three problems. In order to do that, they had to bring in 250,000 mercenaries. That's right. And they brought and them the, over from Iraq and Syria, Syria. and everything else. Afghanistan, all over. Chad, Sudan, Yemen. every every nasty radical you can imagine. Armed and then with Chris Stevens' help, right, yeah, right. funded them, trained them, and... Then they began to bomb Libya because even with this military force, they couldn't take over the Libyan people. We're all against it. 85, 90% of them were all against this. Exactly. So, so what happened is NATO started bombing and they bombed everything. They didn't just bomb to help civilians. They bombed to kill civilians. They bombed hotels, hospitals, schools, water, water supplies, plant, power, power plants. Uh, they bombed 20,000 desert palm, uh, date palms. They bomb farms. They bomb everything. You can't believe what they bombed. We're we're complete witnesses, eyewitnesses to this uh, travesty and these war crimes they yeah. committed. Upon so the, the reason we're eyewitnesses is we were asked to go into Libya to head an NGO fact-finding commission in April. We went in there in May, and we actually 2011, and we actually were trapped inside Tripoli from May through the overthrow of Tripoli at the late August. Uh, 2011, we saw all these atrocities. We documented them. And uh, in the end, when, when they invaded Tripoli. Literally invaded it. Invaded it. it. We, we were in our hotel and we saw three attack, uh, U.S. attack helicopters, black ones, coming in off the Mediterranean, flying low with their mini cannons firing, shooting at every man, woman, and child in the street. They killed uh, 1,300, I think, the first hour and wounded 5,000 civilians in the first hour. And that invasion of Tripoli continued until they had blown that city up. Then they handed it over to other Al-Qaeda mercenaries who broke into every car, every home, every shop. They just gave it to them to completely uh, steal everything they could and break or rape 
or kill everything they wanted to. Now, we were on their kill list because Joanne and I had the audacity to go on TV and radio and live and tell the people of Libya they had the right to determine their own government. Can you imagine that? <laughs> and uh, we were captured by al-Qaeda at gunpoint, taken to their torture center. We were sentenced to be killed and chopped up and burned, and they were going to blame that on Gaddafi. And um, God got us out of that with three miracles. Three separate miracles got us out of their torture center, out of Tripoli, and then out of Benghazi. Even the guys who came in from the DIA who debriefed us, they said that was a requirement, said that nobody gets out of al-Qaeda's hands, that we had, sure. to, we had to be, they said, you should be in the Guinness Book of World Records because there's nobody alive. You shouldn't be alive today. One guy said, y'all were never supposed to leave Libya alive. I don't know if he misspoke or he was feeding us a, a, some inside information. But um, when we got out of Libya, and, and I've got to tell you, we had no assistance from this government at all. Well, see, In fact, contrary. If I could interrupt for a second. The main yeah. reason I wanted to talk about your experience mm -hmm. there in Libya during the invasion, because what I mean, that's that's I think where you guys really shine with your story, because. Over here, you know, we hear about this, you know, even this is the war that uh, James and I both pointed out uh, that the progressives started to say, you see, oh, Barack Obama, he's 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 not soft on terrorism. He's going to go into Libya. And this was like a, a thing we needed to do, responsibility to protect. And they, and they drummed this up and the American people got the support of it. And yes, yes. And then it, hap it happens, the Libyan invasion, just like you're talking about. And then next thing we know, it's gone from the news and nobody even cares. Right now, the country is literally in shambles. So I just wanted to hear what are some eyewitness reporting things that you guys actually saw on the ground that we weren't were, seeing from here? You know what I mean? The, the invaders, because there were very, very few Libyans ready to have a revolution. The invaders, these 250,000 mercenaries, were Al-Qaeda and Muslim Brotherhood and Ansar al-Sharia. And Blackwater was on the ground with them, leading them around. Training them financing them, providing them with weapons, and then support in the form of bombing raids ahead of them. Now, the UN resolution said that they would set up a no-fly zone. Forget that. The no-fly zone was set up after two days. The U.S. pilot said the Libyans couldn't get a mosquito in the air. So why did the U.S. then put 60,000 bombing sorties into Libya? They dropped more bombs than World War II combined. How, how is that protecting civilians? And you've got to count the 500, now it's over 600,000 civilians killed out of a population of five and a half to six million to kill 10% of them. And use of weapons of mass destruction. Under the auspices of protecting civilians. And they, all the bombs were depleted, depleted uranium. All the anti-aircraft shells were depleted uranium. They used fuel air explosives, which is a poor man's nuclear bomb, which is a two-part explosive that uh, it ex first explosion disperses phosphor over a large area. The second one ignites the phosphor. It burns at 6,000 degrees. It soaks up all the oxygen. It increases atmospheric pressure 20 times. Everything below that area is destroyed. Every man, woman, child, cockroach, and everything. And those fuel air explosives were used over Seert. It was used over Banwalid and other areas. Sarin gas was deployed by Al-Qaeda against the Libyan civilians. So protection of civilians is absolute garbage. That's a lie. It never happened. It was never the intent. It was to destroy the country. One of the things we were privy to, we met with uh, one of the imams. His name was Sheikh Khalid Tantouche, who is still to this day in prison by Al-Qaeda over there illegally. 
uh, Sheikh Khalid Tantouche was a very westernized Muslim who believed in uh, that uh, none of this radical stuff was correct, that it shouldn't be. And he and uh, 13 or 12 other Islam imams were on a tri trip in May, or it was April or May, over to Benghazi to try to see if they could stop this entire mess. They wanted to stop it. They wanted to go and talk to all the heads of all the churches. When they got to Brega, which is a port near, it's in the east, it's near Benghazi, they stopped at a tea house for tea, and NATO dropped a bomb on them, killing all of them but two. Sheikh Tantouche survived that, and we interviewed him. They tried to kill him two more times. Now, you have to understand that this is not, this is not protecting civilians. This is stopping everything uh, that would stop the, that would cause negotiations to happen. We also know that Gaddafi and his family met with the CIA, the U.S. Uh, intelligence agencies, with France, England, and some other people privately in um, Jerba. Jerba, Tunisia, a little island, and Gaddafi offered to leave. This he said, have, this he said in probably May, May. Was it March? March, Okay. Yeah. He offered to leave. He said, I'll leave. I don't care. He said, take the oil, whatever you want. Just stop bombing the people of Libya. Stop killing them. And he was told in no uncertain terms, along with his family, that the bombing was going to continue as long as they wanted, and that he was going to die, and there was nothing he could do about it. That's the way it was going to be. And when he came out of that meeting, if you'll remember, you can go back and find it, his son Saif, al-Islam, spoke. He was very angry, and he said, we're going to kill every rebel, every Ill illegitimate rebel in this country, every traitor in this country, because of what you've done to this country. And it was a bad thing for the for him because it looked bad in the press, but you have to understand the reason he was so angry. Nobody knew that, that uh, the destruction of Libya was promised to him. But, you know, you have to you have to look at how in the world could a country, how could the UN and NATO blow up a civilization? Well, they've done it. They did it in Iraq. They were, they're doing it in Syria. They're doing it in, in Ukraine. You know, it's, these are all false flags oper operations with the, with the intent to uh, disrupt and dismantle all these countries so that the Bilderbergs, One World Order, these godless uh, spawn of Satan, if you would, can, can uh, easily control yeah, everybody. The thing that's so heinous about Libya, that's different about Libya, is Libya was the lead against radical Islamists. Worldwide. Worldwide. Gaddafi hated them, and they had trained for 30 years to fight these people. That's why you had 3% or 4% of them, Bel Hajj, a bunch of them I can name, that lived outside, fighting in Afghanistan, living in the United States, some of them with the CIA, outside of Libya, because if they went back there, they would have been imprisoned. And so when the U.S. went in there, they joined hands with al-Qaeda. They joined hands with uh, Ansar al-Sharia. They joined hands with the Muslim Brotherhood. And then they left and gave the country to those criminals. Now, you, now you have a country of citizens against all this radical Islamists. So what happened is all the you have like the Old West where you have gangs of armed terrorists walking the streets rape women whenever they want, take money from people whenever they want, no military, no army, no protection, no security, because they've killed everybody or everybody has left. You have two million Libyans living in exile just to stay alive. So one thing that uh, we covered early on in our coverage of it, and I wanted to know what your thoughts on were on this or if you saw any uh, evidence of it, was there were the Al-Qaeda or Muslim Brotherhood-backed rebels were massacring uh, black Africans. 
Oh, absolutely. oh yeah. There we, was a, we, there was a very large population of Black Africans, and that was only covered in the news for a very short period of time, and then it disappeared. But it, I never heard of it stopping. Thirty to thirty-five percent of all Libyans were black. It was a colorblind country. You saw blacks in every single family: black, brown, beige, every color in between. And uh, the they started to eliminate to do genocide on the blacks the first week of the revolution, said they were going to do it, and then did it. They said they were going to clean the country. This is the radicals. And they, that was actually written, written in an article in the news. Yeah, we, we uh, documented 128 mass graves that were full of black bodies. The number of blacks killed were over 200,000. They're we still doing it to this families. day. We interviewed one of the families of the young man that they caught. He was a military. He was in the, in the Libyan military, and he was black. And they burned, they hung him upside down, they chopped him up, they burned him, they did all kinds of nasty things to him. And they put this out on the internet and on the on their TV, they showed videos of it. They, they claimed it was all the things that were done by Al-Qaeda and Muslim Brotherhood. And I want you to know, it wasn't the U.S. joining hands, the U.S. owns them. They direct them, they pay them, they train them. And ISIS is just another leg and, of that same thing. Christopher Stevens was the weapons runner. But uh, uh, they're still doing it. The first week they declared that they were going to cleanse the country of all these mercenaries. They weren't mercenaries. They were Libyan citizens. They held first-class Libyan passports, had been Libyans for 150, now, 200 years. They have raised five cities in Libya that were black cities, mostly black. But the biggest one, the tribe Turaga, and their city is completely gone. The Mizrata militias went in there, killed everybody they could. Anybody else ran away. They're, in, they're homeless now, living in uh, tents or little camp. Cages. cages, if you will. Mizrata and they raised the entire city. They they scraped it. It's not there anymore. The blacks were mostly in the agricultural business. They raised chickens and and crops and things like that. Very, very productive. They were really the most productive Libyans. And and it was a shame. We we came to all the black leaders in the United States, and none of them wanted to take that gauntlet and move forward with it. Cynthia McKinney is one of the few that that has been uh, telling the truth hard, about yeah. that, but uh, from the present all the way down, none of them we want to mention. Now, in Libya, the way they started this, I don't know if you remember this, but there was a group of men they captured that were supposedly uh, uh, rebels, and Gaddafi's army supposedly captured them, interrogated them, and killed them, and it was put on the news all over the place. We actually interviewed one of the young men that survived that. Every, everybody was supposedly killed, shot in the head. Or whether If they were black, they were chopped up. If they weren't black, they were shot in the head. Uh, he, somebody saw his body move and pulled him out, and he had two bullets in his brain and one in his back, and he survived. They did some surgery on him there, and, and, and they, they spirited him out to Tunisia. They snuck him out because they tried to poison him twice in the hospital in Benghazi to get him to shut up. We interviewed, we did a two-hour interview with him when he got home, and he told us, that they were Libyan soldiers, and they had been told by their their commander, Protectors. Their, their commander that that they don't know who this is attacking their country, but please don't shoot to kill. Please, uh, we're not winning. We're not having any luck with this until we find out what's going on. Please go home to your families. That's what they were trying to he do. Said, don't shoot them. Shoot above their head. Shoot below. And he said, Come, "We're just trying to protect the the airport in Benghazi." And then so they when, were they were captured. They were in Albaida City, and on their way home, and. Uh, they were captured, and they, the people who captured them were radicals, and they act like they were Libyan citizens, and they said, we're going to have to take off your uniforms because the people won't believe that you're trying to help, and you'll never get out. So they followed all their instructions, 
And then they had their hands wired behind their back and taken to a mosque where they had a kangaroo court and sentenced to death. Now, Al- Ansar al-Sharia was there with a camera and also uh, al- al-, al Jazeera and al-Arabia. So yeah. the, the news yeah, the agencies news were embedded with al-Qaeda from the first day. This was the first now, day of now the Now, this was a complete false flag. They knew these were Libyan sh- soldiers that were being killed, and they reported it that they were rebels. So this guy is an eyewitness. He was there. And we have it on tape of exactly how they falsely started this war. So we know that the, that the news was embedded with al-Qaeda, passing out lives from day one. And this is some of the evidence that the government here doesn't want us to put out. And when we got back to Houston, uh, we tried to tell every intelligence agency, every politician about what was really going on in Libya. Nobody wanted to hear from us. Uh, Dr. Jerome Corsi of WorldNet Daily started writing articles based on our information in as soon as Chris Stevens was killed. And he's written about 40 articles now based on intel we provided him. Uh, three documents have, read in, have been read in the, the congressional records that came from us. Another half a dozen or so are in the, in the pipeline. We, we get all this information from the tribal leaders of Libya who are in exile, where their official spokespersons were the only foreigners that the Libyans trust. And so they continually funnel us with information about what's really going on there. And we had intelligence agencies at our invitation start coming into our house to debrief us in April of 2013. And they were on our home, four different intelligence agencies. Many, many times they came in and we would provide them with with what was really going on in Libya because Al-Qaeda and Muslim Brotherhood had stopped obeying the orders from Washington, D.C. They had $100 billion of money. They owned the country. They owned the weapons. They owned plenty of everything to maintain it. And they made open statements after they killed Chris Stevens that we own this country. We're going to keep it. It's ours now. So the mad dog was biting the hand that had fed it originally. Yeah, they they had the uh, Stinger, remember the Stinger missiles? There was an entire yep. cache of Stinger 20, missiles yep, that went missing. And, sh- you know, shortly before they stopped cooperating with the, the American military was... 20,000 20, yeah. were delivered to them. Yep. 20,000. And when we talked to the intelligence agency, oh, no, we don't know anything about that. The heck they didn't. This is why Chris Stevens was had met the night he was killed with the uh, Turkish representative of the of the prime minister of Turkey to try to get use their influence to get those back, and of course uh, they told him to pound sand. And the guy went out the front of that mansion and got on an airplane. When his plane sat down in Turkey, they started the attack on the Benghazi mansion. There was no consulate. There was no, there'd never a flag run up there or anything. That whole thing, we know the whole story about that. Again, nobody here wants to hear about it. Sure. And, and my thing on that is, uh, I just wanted to briefly talk about Hillary Clinton. So, you know, it's, you know, uh, we've, we've discussed, I don't know if we did discuss, you guys are Bible believing Christians, you know, you thought that, uh, you know, America was the good guys and they were going in to help in most situations until you kind of woke up to see what was going on here. I was the same way. I mean, I joined the military and kind of thought that we were the good guys and whatnot until, you know, I started to kind of wake up to this sort of stuff. Uh, But then we have a situation where our U.S. Secretary of State is going live on the air and saying uh, off off camera or on camera or whatever she did, uh, when she said basically when asked about Muammar Gaddafi, the leader of a, what you said is the richest African nation in the world, one of the most... uh, 
you know, advanced African nations in the world with the highest standard of living. Uh, she asked, is asked about the president and the acting secretary of state says, we came, we saw he died. And that's yeah. the that's the candidness with which our leaders operate outside this country. She's but callous. but She's... the uh, they would have us believe Republican or Democrat alike that this is a good Christian nation and that we were only there for a responsibility to protect. But I think sometimes uh, our leaders, when they speak, they accidentally tell the truth. And this was a good example of that. Also, yeah. I think somehow, uh, you know, I think you, you hit the nail on the head and you probably know way more about it than I do. But there was gun running going out of that consulate or uh, mansion or whatever it was. And that was where, you know, the destruction of Libya was being centered. So, of course, that was a place that was under attack or that would be under uh uh, suspicion and so what what do you think kind of happened there and 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 why was it uh, attacked the way it was well let me say one thing first i keep forgetting to say okay at the, the start of the libyan war if you remember it or the libyan the attack on libya was that were some protesters were shot by they said Gaddafi snipers right and that was in okay. that was that really uh actually very sketchy where they had this town square that didn't really look like the town square that they filmed on cnn yeah yeah yeah, yeah. Yeah, they have a mock-up exactly of Green Square in Tripoli and Qatar. It were, they were Qatar snipers. Everybody in Libya knows that now. Qatar was working with the CIA. Qatar is still in. in it's, Qatar is a rogue state. It's, it, the Ansar al-Sharia is trained there. Even though we have the largest military base from the United States in Qatar, that's where all the radicals go to, to vacation, where they're trained. It's all revolving out of there now. Qatar's a little tiny place. They want the riches of Libya. So you're saying that there's a, an exact replica of Green Square in Qatar? Yes, there are. There is. Excuse me. I did not see it, but I sat with a, one of the reporters who saw it. When, during the takeover of Tripoli, uh, That we were with a lot of reporters in the Corinthia Hotel. They, all, they were trapped in the, I don't know if you remember that story, they were trapped in the Rixus Hotel. Um, <laughs> and then when they got out, they came over. We knew a lot of them anyway, but uh, they were... Some of them were good. Most of them were CIA. But the one guy I knew, he said, you see that green square out there? I said, yes. He said, I was in Qatar. They have an exact mock-up of it. He said, they do their demonstrations for the radical Islamists and for the uh, rebels over there. Because there was none going on in Libya. In, on July 1st, there were 2 million Libyans who came out and supported their government in Tripoli. 2 million. That was a huge number. I, we were there. I was there. That never made the news. So... They were doing their wag the dog thing was going on uh, the entire time. That was kind of a shocking thing. But, you, but the thing about Qatar and the thing about the starting of the, of the war, Qatar uh, has been in charge of a lot of the death squads in Libya. They supply weapons which come from the United States. I have pictures myself during the Libyan war where the uh, Libyan... Uh, air, uh, their Coast Guard captured a ship coming in with illegal weapons. <coughs> it was being actually supported and protected by NATO, but NATO lost control of it. And I have pictures of all those weapons. <coughs> and I have pictures, I have the video of Musa Ibrahim, who was a spokesman for Libya at that time, saying, here's, here's these illegal weapons brought here to kill children and mothers and fathers and people. Is this your protecting civilians? Is this how you work? You know, it's illegal for them to run guns. But they do it anyway. And that, and that was what was going on in, in, in Benghazi, you think? Yeah, that Benghazi at the time, 
that Chris Stevens was killed, he was running guns into Syria. He was all, they were also running fighters into Syria out of Libya. They were training them in Libya and running them in there, training them in, they have a number of training camps in Libya, training radical Islamists. It's like, it's like the CIA has their own army, but no one knows it's a CIA army. And they're moving it around because now the, <laughs> the uh, ISIS is the same people who were trained by uh, American forces in Jordan and came, yes. came down from Syria. Why do you think they all wear black masks? Because a lot of them are white. Real okay. Hmm. Interesting. Yeah, a lot of them are white. I have I have videos. I have pictures of U.S. soldiers on the ground in in Libya. I have videos of of them in Benghazi leading Misrata militias on how to shoot and how to do stuff. Even some of them saying, you know, I can't believe these guys are so stupid. They can't shoot a gun. You know, stuff like that. Um. I don't know if some of those people may be Blackwater. Some of them may be CIA. The French were on the ground there. The, the British were on the ground there. There were a lot of people helping the, the bad guys take over that country. The, the story of the rape of the Libyan women. Remember Hillary Clinton and her big, the Gaddafi's troops are doing this. That was uh, all on the other side. That was a complete uh, story that was true. Libyan women were being raped, but they were be in Libya. I have to add this. In Libya, you don't even raise your voice to a woman. They were completely protected in that culture. There would never be such a thing as a rape, ever. The whole time we were we were there, we saw great respect for women in that country. Soldiers of Libya would never rape a Libyan woman unless they wanted to die. Now, the guys who are coming in, given Viagra, given drugs, given alcohol, of course, they're going to rape anybody they want. They would pick up young girls on the streets, take them to the mosque, take all their clothes away from them, and take them to rape houses. Ms. Rata was full of them. We interviewed personally one of the girls that that happened to. These are, these are criminal acts you can't even believe. One of the rape houses, they killed all the girls in it. They, they went to a house in Ms. Rata where they, they supposedly had some pretty young girls in it, and they took them to a rape house, probably ages 14 to 18. First, they give them alcohol. Then they told them to go into each room and rape each girl. Then next, they came back. Their orders were to go cut their breasts off which they did, and then they wrote nasty words in the streets with those breasts. Now, the guy, one of the fathers of these girls, stuck, we were at a, at a meeting where he spoke as the tears ran down his cheeks of what happened to his daughters. This is the kind of atrocities that happened over there, and here's Hillary Clinton over there saying that they have to kill Gaddafi. I mean, not only that is against international law, it's against our own constitution. And she's openly saying it. The other thing that we know about Hillary Clinton is she used coercion or blackmail to get everybody to join the attack on Libya. And we know this because we sat with the African ambassador to Libya, H.E. Dangor. During the invasion, he had moved to the Corinthia Hotel because his staff was gone and he has diabetes. So he had to have food at certain points of the time of the day. And we would sit with him in the coffee shop from time to time and talk. And I asked him, I said, why in the world would South Africa join NATO? They were very close friends with Gaddafi and with Libya. And he said, well, your Secretary of State, Hillary Clinton, showed up in our country and told us in no uncertain terms that if we did not join NATO, that we'd probably find some rebels in our backyard. <laughs> she also did it to, we have proof that she did that in Kuwait with some of our friends there in the Kuwait royal family. 
Sure, sure. And then the Kuwait royal family uh, daughter was the one who went on TV and said they took the babies out of the incubators, and yep. and that was yep. that was all a lie as well. All, so, all of it. They they use a blackmail. Absolutely. So miraculously, and not miraculously, let's let's be honest. God gets you out. Do you want to talk a little bit yeah. about this amazing situation that you guys found yourself in, and how you got out of Libya when all this was going on? Well. When all this was going on, they came in and they took over Tripoli. Tripoli. Tripoli was a stronghold against all this. They didn't want their government to fail. They didn't want. They didn't want to give up their government. They every government has trouble. They all have corruption inside their government, but not anything like the United States was saying. Besides the fact that the Libyan culture is not ready for Western-style democracy, and the Libyans know it. They who are we to tell them what type of, of government they have to have? Uh, if if a strong leader keeps their tribes together and keeps the country together and keeps out the radical Islamists, even if it's a dictatorship, maybe that's what it takes at this time in history. And if they were happy with that, why do we have to destroy it? You know, uh, things were getting done there. People were happy. People were flying in and out and going, doing business and and living their lives. There was no. Uh, if there were any problems with Gaddafi, it would have only been with the radical Islamists the people who were, were trying to uh, kill other Libyans because they didn't join whatever cult they wanted to join or they didn't wear a burqa or a woman was being killed because of whatever reason, you know. Those those people were being stopped. But getting back to Chris Stevens for a minute, and then I'll go back to how we got out. We have an eyewitness that lived across the street during the time of that uh, attack, and he said the area was cordoned off. For a five-kilometer area, it was completely cordoned off before the attack ever began. So it was completely planned. He said, "Who comes?" He said, "I saw them come. Most of them were not Libyan. Most of them were outside." He said they had uh, different accents and different clothes. He said strange clothes. He said bringing AK-47s and RPGs. He said, "Who comes to a, a protest with AK-47s?" And he said, "No." He said these people. He almost got caught because he was coming home from the store. And they started walking down the street. And so he was peeking out of his gate when they were coming down the street. And he said, I asked them, are you here to kill us? And he said, the man said, no, we're not here to kill Libyans. We're here today. We're here to kill Americans. And so this eyewitness, he said, you know, when he came home from the store, two cars left the, the compound, uh, big cars, black cars with all white faces in it. So they evacuated the compound of everybody they wanted to live. That was within about a minute, that of, the within a minute of the fighting starting. Chris Stevens was not part of that entourage, and he was the ambassador who was there. So he said in his mind, he said in our, and he tells a long story about how he went in there and he saw him abusing the body. They didn't know who it was. But they didn't know who it was Chris Stevens until they drug it out to the light. But Chris Stevens was alone in a room dead by himself. And he said, you know, it doesn't make any sense that these people left and left him if he was still alive when they left. So, so you know, he, he, rises the, he raises the question of, um, was it an assassination of Chris Stevens with a cover? Yeah. And if not a direct assassination, just kind of letting him, letting it happen, you know, yes. just uh, yes. kind of get everybody safely out. And you have you have to wonder. I mean, you lay down you lie down with dogs. Uh, well, yeah. Please. Dead men tell no tales. Exactly. Exactly. And Hillary Clinton, look at her history. Well, and yeah, and that, that's 
yeah, we'll get into we we can get into that all day. So you end up miraculously as a by the grace of God getting out. How in the world yeah. did you manage that? Especially well, after you mentioned you were already you were captured by Al Qaeda. They had our name on a kill list, and uh, long to- story about how we ended up getting captured by them. But they had us on a kill list. We they took us their torture center. There were five other people with us that had attached themselves to us because they knew we were going to get out of the country. And, we and uh, um, anyhow, they took us to their torture center. And a guy that had been the head of, of the IT at the Corinthi Hotel, where we had stayed forever, perfect English, well-educated guy, but never very friendly. When he heard that they had sentenced us to be killed and chopped up and burned, he, he came, I think, under his own uh, uh, causes, to the, to the other hotel, which Mahari. was their torture center, the Mahari, sent the first driver home, and he said he was going to be driving the van. And he told us, he said, uh, I, was, I was then, I had fought them all this time to get our passports back to let us go to the rescue ship, which was there from Malta. We'd been uh, promised uh, seats on that or locations on that by the Russian ambassador for all seven of us. And I was adamant about us getting out of there and getting to the rescue ship. And he came and he told, he said, no, this, the van's going back to the hotel. And I said, like, heck it is. I said, you know, we were offered that van. We're going to the rescue ship. He took Joanne over the side and he said, what he didn't understand that the imam said was that you're to be killed and chopped up and burned when you go to the rescue ship and they're going to blame it on Gaddafi. And uh, I think they set up a kill zone yeah. two blocks to the west, to the east, or was it to the east? And okay. he said, "I think I can get, take the back roads and get you back to that hotel." And he said, I, I, "I've gotten to know you and your husband. You're good people. You're not really doing anything but trying to help Libya. But uh, I'm going to try to help you." Now he was Al Qaeda. If they had known what he was doing, he he would have been finished on the spot. But um, that was the first miracle. God touched his heart, and he actually. Same. Got us out of there and got us back to the first hotel, to our original hotel. The, the second miracle was uh, one of the Al-Qaeda that was in charge of the rescue ship. It was an IOM. Uh, it was an immigration ship from the UN. It wasn't the Malta rescue ship. It was, it was a ship that was taking refugees to Benghazi. We were real trepidatious about going to Benghazi because that was really where the fighting had started and everything. And this guy came and talked to us in our hotel. He said, uh, and he had been in our hotel for, for off and on for a long time. He had eaten lunch. We knew him. We, just we didn't knew know him, who he didn't was. know who he was, you know. And he said, uh, uh, no, he said, Benghazi's safe. We have to get you out of Tripoli because if these people find out who you are, you're already been ordered to be killed. And so he said, I'll make sure that I take you to the ship in my car. And when you arrive in Benghazi, I'll make sure they take you to a hotel rather than the, rather than the refugee center on the border with Egypt, because your names will be there also. And he said, I want to help you. You're nice people. So he did exactly that. And we got to Benghazi and we were taken to the hotel. That was the second miracle, because, again, he was. Al Qaeda, and and there was uh, six of us that got that out. dropped down to our number dropped from seven to six. The Filipino gal that was with us had no heart for any more of that. Uh, when we got to to, to Benghazi, uh, there was a U.S. office official office in that hotel in the Tabisti Hotel. We went to meet them. They didn't want to have anything to do with us. They, the guy could barely speak English. He said, "No, I'm only 
dealing with rebels. I have nothing to do with American citizens. And I said, we need help. We need out of this God-forsaken country. And he said, I can't help you. I only deal with rebels. We went upstairs. The EU had an office also. We went up there and met with them. The guy says, I can't help you. You're not, you're not EU citizens, you know. And when we got back to the lobby, the, the concierge at the hotel recognized the six of us as not being typical rebels or anything. And so he called the number three man in the NTC, which was the phony government installed by the United States, France, and England to run Libya. National Transitional Council. And uh, called the number three guy. He <clears throat> sent his, his uh, security guy over. He told him, he said, yeah, these are different people. They're well-spoken, educated, etc." He came over himself. He was dressed in a suit and tie, spoke perfect English. And uh, this was still Ramadan. And uh, uh, we talked to him because their custom is you find out what tribe they're in. You find out what people you know that they know, et cetera. Just so happened some of our it's best friends best friends in Libya were members of his tribe. We gave them their names, all the kids, the father and everybody. He said, yes, they're in my tribe. Not, not ranking people, but yeah, they're okay. That was our green light. With that, he uh, said he would try to get us on an airplane leaving that night, going from Benghazi to, to Tunisia. It would be carrying wounded soldiers, and he would make his best efforts to do that. In the meantime, he invited us to have uh, dinner. dinner. He paid for our dinner at the, at the, as they broke fast, break fast because they were still fasting because of Ramadan. First time we'd eaten in four or five days. And... Uh, his security guy stayed with us, got us to the airport, got us first on the plane, got us out of the sight of everybody because people were trying to get out of there. And uh, for us to get on the plane first was not acceptable to anybody trying to get out of that country. But we got out of there, got to Tunisia, and then, and then eventually made our way back to the United States without any help whatsoever from the United States. I've got to tell you, if anybody travels outside the United States and they think that the United States is going to help you, forget it. Go find the worst scum on the street. They'll do a better job of helping you than anybody in the U.S. government. <laughs> and uh, you're laughing. I'm being it serious. It's a heart attack. I know you are. And, and uh, you know, when we got back, I was interrogated three hours at the airport in Houston when we arrived. Joanne got to go on through, and she had secreted on her person the 250 gigabytes of, of all the information that we were able to take out of Libya. Videos that we made on a hard drive, small one. And uh, I was interrogated by three different agencies that day. There were three different screens. I was looking at the back of three screens, and the guy doing the interrogation was getting questions from each of the screens. He'd look at the screen, then he'd ask me a question. I'd respond. He'd type. And this interrogation went on for three hours. We found out at that time that we were black uh, we were targeted at that time. blacklisted. And then uh, actually the CIA gal that was in our home that threatened to kill us told us we had been soft killed and we should be, we should be happy that they didn't do a terminal kill on us. And that I said, well, what's a soft kill? And she said, well, they, they uh, ruin you financially, alienate you take from your, your family and friends, take your credibility away, and uh, you become uh, enabled to, to do any damage to the government. And I said, well, what's... what's terminal kill and they said well they just pick you up and put you in a FEMA camp and nobody ever hears from you again she's also the woman that told us that uh, and she came in with the blaze we were told by many sources that Glenn Beck had been compromised and that uh, 
she came in and she said that after after spending several days with us and acting like she's going to be our best friend and put security down for us, she said we were in more danger from this government than ever in the hands of Al Qaeda. She said you need to shut up about Libya. She said you need to you need to forget about Libya and start your life over today, or you won't have a life. And I said that sounds like a threat. She raised her voice and said, "You stand down and do exactly what I'm telling you, or you won't have a life." That was in May. A uh, year ago, we started going public. At that time, we've been on we've we've been featured speakers at probably thirty events, and we've been on radio, uh, you know, hundreds of hours. We've been featured uh, six John Birch Society events, um, and we we support ourselves because they have alienated us from everybody. Our family won't talk to us. You know, our business associates have been run off. And they they've precluded us from being citizens. You know, for all practical purposes, we're in house arrest, except we no longer have a house. So we live in the homes of people that are gracious enough to allow us to stay as as yes. non-paying guests. We make money for food and gas by selling our little DVD. And we'd like your audience to go to our website, www.livingwarthetruth.com. They'll find a plethora of information that they will not get any place else. These are really the truths about what's been going on and in Libya, went, Egypt, yeah. Syria, everywhere. And Joanne adds stuff to it every day almost. Well, I, I write articles from time to time when I get information from uh, Libya. Sure, sure. And as, <laughs> speaking of being uh, soft-killed, now you guys, are you, you said in the beginning, both hardworking people, and it, it sounds like with your uh, technology that you developed, uh, the oil technology, you were fairly well off, am I right? Sure we were. We didn't want for anything. You know, we were fabulously wealthy. And now uh, having to live with uh, friends and family, that's, that's terrible. And I mean, No, no family. No family, no friends. All our friends and family have been alienated. We live with strangers. They hear about us. They say, would you come and stay in our house for a couple of weeks? And, wow. And, you know, we're so we broke. We try not to get our We're so our broke. We put, we put bread on layaway. But our, our families, you know, they're young. They work. Yeah. They, well, they, would, you know, they would lose their job and everything. We've offered all kinds of, we've been, uh, you know, we've said we'd, we'd love to caretake somebody's house or caretake a ranch. If somebody needs somebody to sit in their ranch, we're, we're incredibly capable. Uh, you know, Jimmy is a great engineer. He can fix anything. I'm, I'm a trained chef. I can do a lot of things. It, you know, we, we were always open to that. We, we tried to get jobs. We put out applications, but nothing ever comes back because I know. We don't even get an interview. You know, they, they, we've been. We we have to be with somebody who's not afraid of this government. Right. So who's that? You know. Well, you know we 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 they planted drugs in our car. I was going to say the one thing that you didn't turn to uh, was drug selling, correct? <laughs> well, listen, they planted. We we did a John Birch in April deal in in Houston. They planted drugs in our car. Had to be at that that meeting. Yeah, tell me tell and, that story because I, I was referencing that. I, I know about that story, but let the listeners know what you're talking well, about there. We we decided after the meeting we were early. We need it was a long drive home, but I needed to change the oil in the car, and so we just dropped by a Walmart, had the oil changed, and tires rotated, and uh, not to disparage the guy, but he had tattoos on the from the back of his hands all the way up on both sides. And he changed the oil, rotated the tires, and then we had dinner with some folks that, that we met that day. And when we left, going back to deep southeast Texas, radar detector went off for 70 miles. So believe me, I wasn't speeding. Incidentally, I've never had a speeding ticket. 70 miles. 
And then we got on a desolate road and they pulled us over and there were two cars pulled us over. This was 10, 30, 11 at night. Yeah, 10, 30. And a drug dog and then another highway patrol car behind it. And they got in, came up the window and he said, we want to search your car for drugs. And I said, I don't think so. And he said, I'm going to bring the dog up here. If we find any drugs on your car, I'm arresting you. We're tearing the car apart until we find it. It's a dog marks for drugs. So he had me stand over in the bar ditch. And uh, the dog went around the car twice, didn't mark anything, to put Joanne in the bar ditch about 50 feet away from us, from me. Dog didn't mark. So he went to the left rear corner of the car and started tapping the, the back window. It's an SUV. Tapping the back window, he did about 15 times. Finally, the dog raised up and, and touched his hand. He did that two or three times. He said, dog's marked for drugs. You're under arrest. So they went over and fished, frisked me, put my hands behind my head. and They opened up the back of the car and were looking in the left rear corner of the car. They crawled underneath the frame. That guy, the other police officer or the other highway patroller, they, Joanne said, listen, if there's drugs in that car, you all planted them. Oh, that's what all the guilty people say. And they looked for two and a half hours. The the lead guy, the guy that had the drug dog, had his cell phone in his ear the whole time. Tell me who can look for anything with one hand tied up with your cell phone in your ear. And after about an hour, I said, Joanne, can you scoot over there and see what he's saying? So he's holding his cell phone up his ear and he said, I'm there. That's where I am. So somebody was directing him where to look for the drugs. And of course, they weren't there. Because I'm pretty sure that this guy that changed the oil got a Christmas present. The hand of God reached down through him. Don't know. But after two and a half hours, he finally said, well, we didn't find any drugs, but there has been drugs in this car recently. And I said, I don't think so. He said, has the car been out of your hands? And I said, well, we had a, a wreck where the seat, I mean, the airbags deployed in November. It was right. out of our hands for 30 or 40. Well, that's, they must have been hauling drugs, transporting drugs in this car, yeah, car with, a, with a car without a dash. Come on. Wow. wow. So, you know, these. They another, gave us a warning ticket for going 67 and a 65. <laughs> Listen, the, the whole thing was was so bizarre Right. Um, to have us out in the bar ditch for hours. We didn't get home till two in the morning. And I told the guy, you know, I said, our radar detector went off for 70 miles. I'm sure we weren't speeding. And besides that, if you're targeted and under the scrutiny of the CIA, the FBI, and whatever, other, whatever other agency there possibly could be, why would you take the risk of carrying drugs around when you've never done it before in your life and you wouldn't even know how to do it in the first place? Now, I've got to tell you something else. The, the DVD, the only way we make any money is selling this little DVD. So we were doing these seminars and we were asking people to help us and pray for us and support us. Nobody did anything. They, nobody made donations. So one person says, you have to make a DVD. People will buy a DVD where they won't make a donation. They need to get something for their money. So we took all the money we had and we had a thousand DVDs replicated. Last summer. Last summer. Year ago, uh, last month, this month. And uh, when they arrived, they arrived several days early. We had to have them by a particular event we were going to do and stock them. And, and so the, the DVDs arrived, and I thought, well, I'll open them up and check them out. And sure enough, they had our cover, and inside was pornography, hardcore. And I opened up one bundle, another one, another one. They were all pornography. So I called a friend a woman that we had met that was a retired detective. And I said, what do I do about this? She said, do not take them to the police. 
She said, you'll be linked to them forever. They will not get destroyed. You know, you need to go destroy them. And I said, well, do I take them to some place that destroy? She said, if you take them to a paper shredder, somebody make sure you watch them shred them. Otherwise, they'll come back and bite you. So without any money at all, we had to go buy a shredder and shred these things ourselves. <laughs> Two days later, we get a, the replicator calls us and he said, first time in 12 years, I've been requested by the government to have you sign an affidavit that there's not pornography or questionable material in your, in your DVD. And I, he said, are you willing to sign it? And I said, sure I am, as long as you send me back what I sent you. He knew about the other. So, you know, they had tried to, the reason they do that, we find out this is a, a typical thing they do. They make deliver a package to you. You hold the package right behind it. They arrest you because there's pornography in the package and you're mm -hmm. holding it. And so uh, it's, it's a felony for intent to distribute pornography. So you're guilty no matter what you say, and many, many people have been have been classified uh, felons for that reason. So they, you know, this is another time God saved us. So, you know, we've been protected, you can't imagine. And, uh, you know, we would, we would uh, hope that everybody learns from us that, you know, when you pray, believing your, your prayers are going to be answered, God will answer your prayers. We, were, we are alive and we're here because of God's intervention to help us. And we're very spiritual people. We, we're not big on structured religions or anything like that, but we're very, very spiritual people. We, we own our own nonprofit. We have funded humanitarian and philanthropic activities all our lives. We're pretty good people, you know, but really uh, we are faithful people. And this is the part that the intelligence agencies don't under understand. They have threatened us. They've ruined us. They've destroyed us. Yet here we are. We're happy. If they if they took us off of this world tomorrow, we'd be in a better place immediately. So, you know, they can't scare us. They can't do that, and they don't understand that. But we are faithful people. We're very, very spiritual folks. And, uh, you know, the, the story that should come from this and the thing that the United States and the other developed countries need to do, they need to get back on their knees because there's a, a horde of, of spawn of Satan godless people running this world and it means nothing for them to kill a half million, a million, you know, 20 million people. And, uh, we have to get back on our knees and we have to, to get back to, to what our, our true values and virtues are. Amen. I couldn't have said it any better myself. And that's one of the questions I did want to ask is, did you have any moments I I know uh, you're religious people, or not even religious people, but you follow Christ, and that you you know you you pray often. Did you have any moments where you where you started to realize, wait a second, this Christianity, this American Christianity, and rah 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 America, doesn't really vibe with what I see going on in the actual Christ that I know. And Never, because we we weren't we didn't we both of us before we knew each other had not. We had divorced ourselves from the from the structured religions. You know, whenever a church is, has got a uh, you know a dozen pieces of, of real estate and they're gathering rents like crazy, not doing any of God's work, then that's not a church. You know, that's not a religion. That's a business. It's a building. And so, <laughs> yes. so you know, we are religious people, but structured religions, no, we're not there. So we we really had not bought into that, if you would, or we divorced ourselves from that a long time ago. The shocking thing for, for us is that people will, they're so eager to speak for their God, 
and their God wants them to kill everybody or wants them to, to uh, destroy people's lives or destroy countries or, you know, who, who are these people? I don't know a God like that. I, I never met a God that wanted to kill people and destroy things, you know, unless you're talking about the dark side. Now, that's a different story. Absolutely. Which God is it that you're serving? Yeah, yeah, well, exactly. Well, I have a colleague, I guess I, uh, I could call him that, but he does a, he used to do a podcast called Future Quake long ago. His name's Dr. Future, but he's actually writing a book, and his whole basis for his book is uh, talking about how uh, Christians in the United States have been fooled into thinking that Islam is the big you know, uh, enemy and that, uh, the Amer- that we have to constantly be fighting against Islam and all these other countries, and that it's okay to go over there and bomb these people because we have to do it, you know, uh, for various different reasons, whether it's occupy till I come, or whatever this, you know, this baloney is. Um, but he's writing, a, a, and he started one book, and I think he's split it off into like three books, and one of them he's calling The Hidden Hand Against the Godfearers, where they're using uh, Christianese, language that sounds Christian to drum up political support for invasions of other countries like Libya and Iraq as some sort of a a Christian value. And no matter where I look, uh, and I'm up here in the Pacific Northwest, uh, you know, Joanne, you said you grew up up here. Um, Up here, if someone says they're a Christian, it actually means something because, you know, most people will just say, no, no, I'm not religious. But those who, who do say that they're Christians up here, you know, more often than not, you know, I've been in a I've been in a church where I've heard a guy say that he was glad that uh, the U.S. was uh, killing people in drone strikes. So yeah. you know, it's become so intertwined our uh, religion of government and uh, you know uh, patriotism money. and money. money. Yeah, and, it's a cycle. We get back to the Inquisition. Sure, and, and members and members of my own family, and that's that's what pains me, and that's what frustrates me, and many of my listeners as well. You know, you're. We're talking to, shoot, roughly 1,000, maybe 2,000 Christians across the country who question the government, who question the news, and who listen to this podcast and are, and are actively seeking actual truth, like from people like yourselves. Uh, my friend Dr. Future also often points out that, you know, we don't ask missionaries what's going on in other countries anymore. We just turn on Fox News. And know. there was a day when we would ask missionaries, what's going on over there? Yeah. But nowadays, you know, we don't have time for that because we got Fox News and we got Glenn Beck, and you know, we're a righteous, uh, we're a Christian nation, and have to divide, uh, conquer. that's right. That's Listen, the Lord has set us apart. We're, uh, you know, a, a special, a special country. Right. Listen, spirituality is a twenty-four-seven-three-sixty-five. You can't go to church an hour on Sunday. And and forgive get all your sins for the for the rest of the week get forgiven, and people think that just because they go to that building that they're they're clean and green, and that's not true. Because whenever somebody commits a sin, they know it. I don't care how much they cover it up. When they do something wrong, they know. Now you can do it enough, and you become calloused where where those uh, ideas and those sensitivities are no longer on the surface like they were when we were young and innocent. But everybody knows. And you can't go kill somebody, and I don't care who they are. You can't or kill you somebody justify and justify it because that's a soul, a and yeah. you didn't make that soul, and you have no right to take that life. Yeah. 
And people had better start becoming spiritual 24-7, 365, because that's what's wrong. You know, this, Jim, this hour on Sunday won't cut it. The, the, gates, the gates of heaven open inwardly. And that's something everybody needs to remember. Because look into your heart, look into yourself. That's where you'll find God. Amen. Mm-hmm. Well, and unfortunately, right now, uh, living a spiritual life 24-7, like you're saying, is harder and harder when we all have, you know, devices in our pockets that can get connect us to the whole world. And we're all distracted with whatever the mainstream, you know, uh, flavor Twitter. of the week is on, on the media. Yep, that's right. Um, we don't watch the media anymore. We haven't for years. No. It's such a false, it's such a false bunch of garbage. You know, it just, it makes us angry more than anything. <laughs> Me too. The Me truth too. is not there. The no. truth is not there. They're all agenda driven. They're all bought and paid for. And, you know, when when 85 people in the world, 85 individuals own 60 to 75% of everything, something's wrong. It's almost and like those guys are so powerful. They, they mandate what's going to take place to help them. It's almost like there's a grand plan for world government or something. So, oh, they got it. Yeah, you you can call them. You can call them uh, Bilderberg, One World Order, Rothschild Group, etc. It's all the same ones. Or you could just read the Book of Revelation. There you go. Yeah. That one's a good one. Yeah, they say the the kings of the earth uh, who trade in men's souls will uh, use sorcery and uh, whatnot to deceive the nations. Yeah. Well, well the, back to the money changers. Slide a hand. That's right. That's right. You know, have have your people please go to our website yeah. com. We'd like them to buy our DVD. That helps us so much. They can make a donation if they don't want to buy the DVD. Yeah. There's a donation button. Awesome. I I encourage anybody who is going to donate to uh, my podcast this month to please just donate to you guys. Um, and uh, that way we can uh, help to support you guys. Uh, everybody, I do encourage you to go to LibyanWarTheTruth.com. Uh, make a donation, purchase a DVD. I'm sure it's full of good information. I might have to purchase one myself. Um, Joanne and uh, James, I've, I really appreciate you guys coming on the podcast and talking to us. And unf- no, well, I don't. I can't think of a better way to end other than to pray for you guys real quick. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, dear Lord, we just come before you, and uh, Lord, I just lift up James and Joanne, and Lord, uh, for whatever reason, you know, they have been through a lot of stuff here, Lord, and you've looked after them throughout it all, and I know that, um, I know that, that you care for them greatly, and Lord, that uh, you love them just like you would love any of your children, and Lord, they have have seen things and and seen truths that a lot of us need to really consider when we go about our day-to-day lives, when we consider our government or the media or whatnot. And Lord, I just pray that you would help them to spread the word about what's really going on and what the current state of our nation really is. And I pray that you would soften people's hearts to hear their message as well as soften people's hearts to to reach out to help them. Lord, we know that uh, you spoke to the Samaritan woman in, in, in uh, Israel even when you know no one else would and and here's some people who have been you know soft killed as they said and and they've been outcast from everybody and lord i pray that you would bring real christians into their life who would also speak to them as you spoke to the samaritan woman and and bring them uh fellowship lord pray that you would bring them uh peace lord It, it sounds like a hard road to travel so i just pray that you would also to bring them just peace and uh Lord, just continue to have your hand on their life, Lord. I know they love you. I can tell by 
you know, what he said about not being fearing death, Lord. And I know that, you know, that's a, a great gift that you give us as surety. But, Lord, I'm just asking for some peace in this world and some good fellowship. Lord, I pray that you would uh, continue to support them and uh, help help the people who they speak to to uh, to hear the, the, what they have to say. Lord, I, I thank you for this amazing technology to be able to even speak to them and to even hear about them. And it's it never ama- it never ceases to amaze me how you bring uh, Bible-believing Christians together from all the way across the world uh, who would never meet otherwise, and uh, that has to be you. Lord, I also thank you and praise your name for saving them out of the out of Libya, where they just as easily could have been uh, a, a footnote in history. And uh, we we praise your name for that. We thank you and uh, pray all that in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. God bless you all. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you. A copy of this podcast, as well as links to each story covered, are available at revelationsradionews.com. To contact Andrew and Tim, or to support Revelations Radio News, please visit revelationsradionews.com and click on the Contact tab or Support tab. Please check out the other podcasts at revelationsradionetwork.com. And thank you for your support of this podcast. This is war Like you ain't seen It's winter's long It's cold and me hang dog hard turns now at Bethlehem You just don't invade another country on phony pretext Uh, in order to assert your interests.